0: Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Benjamin Ginsburg surveys what Washington thinks about Americans. Kevin Ring discusses what brought him to become an opponent of mandatory minimum sentences. Wade Henderson talks about surveillance and communities of color. Arjun Singh Sethi discusses a relatively new insidious kind of surveillance of ethnic groups. And author Paul Pillar talks about why Americans have trouble understanding the rest of the world. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. By the time you hear this, we will have a new president and uh, new people taking various uh, administrative offices in the federal government and here to talk about sort of the regulatory landscape and how that might change in a Trump administration. We're talking with Peter Van Doren, a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine, and Susan Dudley, director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, and uh, she's formerly the head of OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs during the George W. Bush administration, The former head Oiranian, I believe is the term (laughs) that people use. So uh, to both of you, welcome. What are some of the biggest things that we're likely to see uh, as a departure uh, with respect to regulation in in the Trump administration, and, of course, recognizing that Republicans now control both the House and Senate?
1: Probably the biggest thing that we'll see from the White House is that President, elect Trump, I guess by the time you hear this, it's President Trump, has said he would like to eliminate two regulations for every one new regulation that he initiates. That will be a big change. And exactly how he does that, I think, will be interesting to see.
0: Now, when you and I have talked about this before for the Cato Daily podcast, it's not two for one as a nominal number of regulations. uh, They're using a different metric that they would like to see for... How those two and one add up?
1: Well, at this point, we don't know. We okay. just know that president the president elect has said he'd like to do that, and we don't really know what measure he'll use. Okay. But yes, w- my assumption is that it won't be a rule for rule, but it'll be more dollar for dollar
0: in terms of economic
2: impact. Right. We also may see the use of what's called the Congressional Review Act, which has only been used once in its history. It's a law that allows Congress to. Veto uh, a, any regulation implemented by an agency within 60 legislative days of uh, the printing of that regulation in the Federal Register. This law, for various obvious reasons, is only used when all three branches—when the House, the Senate, and the President—are of the same party. In um, most of the time, that is does not occur, and so. Uh, Congress may v- veto a regulation, but then the president would veto the bill that vetoed the regulation. So, But in this context, with all th- House, Senate and president of the same party, we may see a series of of bills that attempt to eliminate regulations uh, enacted in the last 60 days. And that's 60 legislative days. So uh, Susan can correct me, but I think that because Congress is not in session that often. <laughs> this goes back to regulations that have been implemented
0: since May, of basically of 2015. Now, what was the point of the Congressional Review Act? Uh, we hear a lot about midnight regulating. Was it to address that?
1: I don't know if that was no. the goal, but I think that is another condition, in addition to the ones that Peter mentioned. that. The president who has to sign or veto it will be different from the president who actually issued that regulation. Um, so it, it has the only other time, as Peter alluded to, it was, has been used once before, and it was a regulation issued in that so-called midnight period by President Clinton. And President Bush knew. President Bush signed the resolution of disapproval.
2: And it was the ergonomic standard which um, is OSHA had uh, issued and. One thing we might want to talk about is where is OSHA? I mean, Republicans used to beat up on OSHA, and OSHA was a, a vigorously discussed by regulatory economists. And in, in in my journal, regulation, I don't think we've run an OSHA article in a long. OSHA kind of has gone away. Um, am I am I missing? Some, I mean, all the laws and everything are still there, but. We did not hear vigorous discussion of OSHA uh, in, in the recent presidential election. And it could be the deindustrialization of of the United States, which is—if Trump brings back all the jobs in factories, then OSHA and what it does may actually um, be, become much more important than it is recently. Susan, where did OSHA go?
1: Well, OSHA has issued a few— big, really big rules, I think, in this administration. But OSHA tends to be quite slow at writing regulations. Other agencies turn them out pretty quickly, whereas OSHA takes decades for a single regulation. So crystalline silica was one that was a a big one, I think, in the last few years. What was that? Um, Crystalline silica is—it's like the— fourth most common element on Earth, or not element, but compound on Earth. Um, But when it's finally fractured, like in construction processes, it can be um, harmful if inhaled, cause silicosis. Um, But that was one that had really been OSHA's top priority for probably the last three decades, and it was finally issued a couple of years ago.
0: All right. So with respect to, I mean, all executive agencies issue regulations— what changes are we likely to see in some in some particular agencies with respect to uh, the regulations that they'll be promulgating? I think what's interesting—I'm um, I mean,
2: not trying to deflect that question—but <clears throat> the role that Congress plays in all that. I mean, there's often a, a storyline by both the left and the right, but more, more often the right, about sort of out-of-control art, art regulatory agencies, and it's as if Congress has nothing to do with this. But— um, Jerry Ellig of the Mercatus Center wrote a paper recently that said, you know, about half of all the regulations that Congress—that or that the agencies had to issue that were over $100 million in value um, since 2008. They were mandated by Congress. And so the out-of-control agency rhetoric is very useful, because Congress both tells the agencies what to do, and then it runs in elections against agencies, and they they— because they have run constituency services that try to tell constituents the big bad—you name the agency—is doing something and we'll deal with it and help you get out of this and all that. When In fact, Congress told the agencies what to do in the first place, uh, and they, they straddle that for, for political
1: reasons. That's right. I think Congress gets to have it both ways. They'll pass sweeping legislation that—with sound-good titles. But then they leave it to the agencies to actually write the regulations to implement it. And then, as you say, they get um, points with their constituents again when they slam their fist on the table and hold hearings. But Congress itself has been—has not been as accountable as I think our founders envisioned Congress being, that Congress would be the branch that would be writing all laws. And that is definitely not the way things are now. And that is something that we're hearing in this new Congress, is that they're very interested in. Some—they're passing legislation that would require them to take more responsibility and be more accountable for regulations. One example of that would be the Reins Act, the regulations from the executive in need of scrutiny. Now, that has been introduced in several of the last Congresses and passed the House, I believe, last time, and has already passed the House. Um, and that would require Congress to affirmatively approve every new major regulation. Um, I, I'd love to know what Peter thinks about that. I, I can see the advantage of it is what we've just been talking about, that Congress now must be responsible. They can no longer point the finger at regulatory agencies when the outcomes of regulations harm their constituents. On the other hand, it's going to make the regulatory process a lot more political.
2: And there are many things that Congress and the public are in favor of that are actually now very cost-effective. and so. Uh, Jonathan Adler, who's a scholar at uh, Case Western Law School, wrote an article in Regulation in 2011 that said, for all the mischief that the RAINS Act might reign in, the RAINS Act also might—Congress would vote for the minimum wage forever, and economists don't always think that's a great idea. And positive train control, right? When there's crashes, uh, Congress passed a law that said the railroad shall have positive train control by— 2000-and-whatever, 11, I think. And turns out it's not cost-effective. I mean, not very many people die in that way, even though, when they do, it makes lots of publicity. And to equip all railroads with positive train control would be extremely expensive, and the Federal Road Administration, when evaluated that proposal, said this doesn't pass the cost-benefit test. So Congress has actually uh, po- postponed the deadline for achieving that goal. Uh, and there are many other kinds of regulatory attempts that are like that, which come as a result of emergencies or accidents, and then Congress has to quietly retreat from them.
0: So it's not a clear solution to dealing with the problems associated with uh, regulatory overreach. There, yeah. there are there are some lots of regulatory overreach is actually
2: very popular <laughs> um in an odd way. yeah, so.
1: I think that's right. I think that it it has some advantages. Um, in it that it is making elected officials accountable for regulations. But the disadvantage some of the advantages of the regulatory process that we have now is the opportunity for public and com, public notice and comment, the transparency and the analysis that goes into the new regulations. We can question that analysis, but it would become a much more political process based, as peter says, on on what's popular at the moment.
0: Now, Susan, you mentioned that Congress, uh, in many respects, has it both ways or gets to have it both ways, both in writing uh, legislation that is often vague and when regulatory agencies, in some cases, maybe doing their level best to apply the vague language of, of the statute to writing regulations, Congress gets to wag its finger at those agencies. But um, I'm thinking in two big pieces of legislation, Dodd-Frank and uh, the Affordable Care Act, there were Hundreds, if not thousands, of regulations that were that had to be written, and having read portions of a lot of those regulations, at least in Dodd Frank myself, it seems like these agencies were asked to uh, in- essentially engage in an impossible task
1: with with impossible deadlines.
0: So, w- with respect to with, with respect to those two laws, what? Uh, what could we see? I mean, if Congress is very interested in reasserting its uh, prerogatives with respect to uh, regulation and one would hope with respect to delegation of of their uh, duties, what might that look like outside of the REINS Act?
1: Well, Congress can always revisit legislation. So, they, could, in fact, they're talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act and replacing it with something else. Um, another thing that's relevant to what you were just talking about is—it's the delegation, but it's also the deference that courts give the agencies. With when language is, is vague, that they that has been dealt—that given them delegated them that authority, and there um, there's at least one bill in Congress, and I'm forgetting its name, that would try to change that. Would would make it so that courts would no longer defer to agencies when the language is unclear and the agency's choice may not be the most obvious
0: interpretation of the statutory language. So, Peter Van Doren, how does that change the calculus of regulators? Well, both the RAINS Act and the law that Susan is talking about—I mean, they're,
2: to use the jargon, right, we're changing the default condition of life, political life, legal life. And uh, that once you do that, the hope is, is that somehow the world will change if you change the defaults, because you make people have to do things that heretofore they have not been willing to do. But Congress is clever. I I do not underestimate the possibility for avoiding responsibility, uh, because members of Congress get reelected by being on the right side of normative struggle. They don't get reelected for actually rearranging the world. And, and constituents, you know, rah, rah, yeah, we've got the person in that we want, and their speeches and their rhetoric sits on the right side of the—whatever normative struggle we're talking about. but. My life and Susan's life, particularly her life, is about the details of getting the world to work. And it's surprising how little interest <laughs> constituents and everyone else has in that. Uh, Susan can speak a, a lot, I think, about how frustrating it is to, for political struggle not to actually care about actual outcomes very much.
0: Well, let, let's, let's talk about regulation, some of those details of regulation. Uh, as broadly as we can, uh, Susan. When you and I t- spoke before, we talked a little bit about this hundred and fifty million dollars in economic impact that would trigger some sort of deeper evaluation of a uh, proposed regulation. There's a lot that that cannot possibly capture. That idea of well, it's this much economic impact. There's a whole lot that you just you can't put into numbers. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to measure. Every president, going back um, to Jimmy Carter and before, have asked agencies to try to understand the effect of their regulations before they're published, and usually that's using some kind of benefit-cost analysis. What are the benefits? What are the costs? Let's try to do things that, on net, have a positive impact. But as you say, so many of—on both sides of that equation are just hard to measure. Um, what what are the costs of additional Homeland Security rules that require—that you, invade your privacy and require you to wait longer in lines? Um, what are the the costs of having a, a new drug not available on the market for a decade later than what it would have been without the regulation? Um, and then, of course, on the benefit side, the same thing. It's very difficult to do. Agencies—and I, I still think it's important to do, I think it's essential to do, um, but we have to recognize that it's um, not a
0: perfect solution. I'm trying to imagine, and Peter, this may speak to you directly. I'm try- it may be a rule on particulate uh, releases of carbon into the air that effectively shut down the brick oven pizzeria uh, establishment in uh, New York or New Haven or somewhere like that.
2: There would be consumer outrage, and then there would be a rider on the EPA appropriations bill saying, "No EPA money shall be used to implement this rule." I mean, I'll give—I have an example of that going in the past, actually. Which is, remember this view I have, which is, Congress is about grand normative struggle, and don't talk about the details, and so. It's hard to remember. Again, the right-of-center folks tend to be against the EPA, and the EPA is the problem. And no, No one now can possibly see the EPA as a compromise. But in 1970, the United Auto Workers called for a ban on the internal combustion engine in five years. The California State Senate passed a bill in 1970 calling for a ban on the internal combustion engine by 1975. So, the Clean Air Act, mischievous as it is from our perspective, was actually the big compromise against the normative stand of of the time. And, and then, since that stand was so ridiculous from an implementation point of view, the Congress then put appropriation writers on the EPA every year after the 1970 Clean Air Act Amendment saying, Don't ever interfere with people in their cars, (laughs) even though that might be the most cost-effective way to deal with air pollution. In fact, don't do that. So So the pizza oven rule is exactly following that—would follow that tradition.
0: I'm thinking of EPA and also the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. These are agencies that have mandates that do not appear to be balanced by other mandates. Meaning their, Meaning their uh, the EPA, for example, you know, thou shalt make the air clean. Uh, and and that kind of thing can lead an agency reasonably to perhaps ridiculous conclusions about what their mandate is and what mm-hmm. kinds of activities they should be able to to change in, in Americans lives. That's right. And
1: statutes like that, that don't require the agencies to do balancing just catered to the natural proclivity of the agency staff anyway. If you work on a particular issue, you soon know it is the most important public health issue or public issue in the world and that all resources should be devoted to that. Whereas statutes, and there are some even—so EPA is governed by several different statutes, and the Safe Drinking Water Act, for example, requires EPA to balance the costs against the benefits. And that's because real people— People see the cost. you know if your municipal water system has to install a treatment that's cost you a lot more than the gain you're getting, people are aware of that. Whereas um, that- in
2: clean air making big bad companies do everything possible to get rid of pollution is just fine.
1: Yeah, the costs are invisible. We don't see where they're coming from.
0: So how do uh, age- how do regulatory agencies balance costs and benefits and do you sense that there's any change in, in how that might occur down the road?
2: As Susan said, in clean water, they're allowed to, but in clean air, they're allegedly not allowed to, but in fact, they, they have to. And the court decisions over the last 25 years have been a game in which the EPA was actually more market-oriented than the law would would allow it to be, and then the court said, you can't be. <laughs> it would, I mean, it's you can't make this up. Um, and uh, Susan may want to comment more. It's just kind of craziness and and— in an odd Cato Roger Polan the, the the court said the law is crazy therefore the agency has to be crazy
1: um, yeah and even when congress recognizes that the law may be crazy changing something as massive as as that requires too much compromise and at least right now we don't i don't see the opportunity for that kind of compromise
2: I don't think I'll be alive when Congress has an adult <laughs> discussion on the costs and benefits of air quality. Uh, if, if, I mean, we should make a bet today on whether that will happen. We need it. We need it badly. Um, uh, and, and, in fact, my view within—or I've argued, you know, within Cato is that focusing on the EPA and the out-of-control EPA, you, you've got to look at the statute that governs its behavior, which says exactly
0: what you—which is, go out and do good. And that's what they try to do. So, you're saying there is no low-hanging fruit in the regulatory—let's just call it a hellscape—of uh, of, of changes that uh, a Republican president and a Republican Congress can really uh, make significant movements on. You're saying it's not going to create that adult—there's no way to create that adult discussion.
2: I mean, they can put riders on an omnibus reconciliation bill that have, that says, "Don't do this and don't do that and don't spend any money doing that." Uh, the question is whether you you can do it in a not in a filibuster-proof uh, environment. But once you need more than fifty votes, then somebody's going to say, "No, I'm going to I'm going to stop this thing with the evil restrictions on something." and then they're going to play a game of chicken about how—do you hold up—you know, you're going to have the equivalent of shutting down the government from the left rather than the right over whether we, quote, cut back on environmental quality or something like that.
1: Let me take us back to where we started with the Congressional Review Act, where Peter was talking about. There may be a way for the next president to use the Congressional Review Act to maybe challenge some of those— regulations that everybody realizes, kind of the emperor has no clothes. We're pretending that we can make a decision and set an air quality standard here. um, But we really are balancing benefits and costs, even if we're pretending that we're not. What if he were to send something up to Congress, a regulation that um, takes the statute at its word, which would say, we should set the standard at zero. If we really have to protect public health with an adequate margin of safety, That means we need to err on the side of safety and set the standard at zero, send that regulation to Congress, and have Congress have to look at that and say, well, this isn't really what we meant. And they could um, then use the congressional resolution of disapproval, and then the president would say, "Okay, I'll sign that.
2: And the law says if you disapprove of a regulation under this process— And here's where it gets tricky. No regulation in this area shall be promulgated ever again. And there's—
1: That's substantially similar. Right.
2: Legal scholars Mm -hmm. are—the pro-environmental folks are having uh, nightmares over this, and thus they don't want—in this game for—I mean, Susan's quite right. Trump says, all right, let's go to zero. (laughs) And And that would shut everything down. And then Congress says, no, let's keep everything open. But you can't pass any air quality regulations in this area ever again. Wow, that's a—that would be the source of lots of dissertations.
0: So, to uh, recapitulate, then, you take the uh, mandate given to agencies at face value, ask Congress to mandate that rule, and then the game of chicken is essentially a partisan game, in many, in many ways, over whether or not you ever want to see any regulation in this area again. Well, and
1: as Peter says, there's a lot of debate about that language. It it's never been it, litigated. Right? It hasn't,
0: so
2: we don't know
1: exactly how what this it would means work by out. It, what does is, what is "substantially the same" mean? Does it mean they could set a slightly different standard? Maybe it does, but um, well, you're not a lawyer either, are you, Peter? No. Yeah. No. So you have two non-lawyers and debating that. Future question.
0: Congresses can <laughs> untie that knot of if course. they choose to. All right, we'll leave it there. Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine, and Susan Dudley, director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, formerly the head O-Iranian uh, for the George W. Bush administration. You can follow all of our uh, discussions and reviews of uh, federal policy with respect to regulation at our website, cato.org. Each year, unelected federal administrators write thousands of regulations possessing the force of law. What do these civil servants know about the American people they ostensibly serve? Not much, according to the new book, What Washington Gets Wrong, the unelected officials who actually run the government, and their misconceptions about the American people. Benjamin Ginsburg, one of the book's authors, spoke at the Cato Institute in December.
3: You know, for many years, um, I've been annoyed at the various surveys uh, undertaken that uh, that seem to, to seem designed to show that ordinary Americans don't know anything about government. Yeah, you know, the one that, that I enjoyed most was one of those old Jay Leno jaywalking um, encounters, where people are asked were asked to name a Supreme Court justice. And a large number said Judge Judy. (laughs) Now, first of all, this is a kind of an honest mistake, right? Because Judge Judy and Justice Ginsburg, no relation, you know, are both small Jewish women who went to the same high school in Brooklyn. They're both graduates of James Madison High School. So why shouldn't people get them confused? At any rate, one day Jen and I were chatting and one or the other of us said, you know, how come no one surveys the government to see what it thinks about the people? No one's ever done this. Why not survey government officials to find out if they know anything about the American people? So basically, we we were able to um, get responses from about 850 government officials and members of what we call the policy community that is, think tankers, contractors, the people who, as a group, are involved in the regulatory and rulemaking process here in Washington. So we asked them what they thought about Americans. Now, I don't have to uh, tell this audience, though I often find myself saying to students that everything you learned uh, about American government is a little wrong. Uh, Most of what you think of as the law is not written by Congress and signed by the president. Uh, The Constitution's got this a little bit wrong. The Presentment Clause, forget it. Um, Most of what we think of as the federal law is written by uh, federal agencies. And um, to a a very substantial extent, these agencies operate without much guidance or direction from Congress and the president. You know, the 114th Congress, the outgoing Congress, enacted uh, 150, let me get my my numbers right here, 218 pieces of legislation, many of which were, were auditory. Uh, during that same period, federal agencies uh, wrote 150,000 pages of rules and regulations, many of which were very important, many of which substantially rewrote federal law. So, for example, the Department of Labor uh, issued new rules and regulations under the authority of the Taft-Hartley Act. Now, I don't see anyone around here who was present when the Taft-Hartley Act was uh, was enacted. Sometimes I feel that I was, but (laughs) but uh, you know, this was when was the when was Taft-Hartley enacted? 1936. So here we are, nearly a century later, the Department of Labor is still issuing rules and regulations pursuant to the act. Now, are these rules and regulations truly pursuant to the act? Well, no one knows. No one involved in the drafting of that legislation is still with us. Uh, And moreover, the federal courts uh, defer to agency interpretations of the law, as you know. There are many principles of deference. My son is an administrative lawyer, and he tells me not to talk about these things, because I don't know what I'm talking about. But I know enough uh, to know that there are several principles of deference, and particularly the Chevron standard. The courts generally defer to agency interpretations of the law. So for all intents and purposes, the Department of Labor is writing new law nominally based upon some now ancient standard. So multiply this by many agencies writing many rules, uh, and you have a government that is centered in the executive agencies rather than the Congress or the White House. So in many respects, we don't have congressional government. We don't have presidential government. We have government by the executive branch. So we uh, decided this is where we would look We found that members of the Washington policy community were not um, representative of the American public. That that should come as no surprise, neither is Congress. Um, Members of the Washington policy community were whiter, they were better educated, they were wealthier than the public at large. Okay. But, Since they're unelected, perhaps this this makes more difference than is the case with Congress. Um, We asked our respondents some questions about their understanding of the American public. It turned out now none of them named uh, Judge Judy as a member of the Supreme Court, but it turned out they were not quite on target in their understanding of Americans' uh, incomes, race. Going down the list, uh, they had an odd picture of Americans. uh, And most important to us, they didn't have much regard for the, the abilities of ordinary Americans to govern themselves. They didn't have much regard for the intelligence of ordinary Americans, for the significance of their views. And they didn't feel, for the most part, that the government should pay too much attention to what ordinary folks thought. In fact, they didn't think the government should pay too much attention to what members of Congress thought. They didn't feel the government should pay too much attention to the president. Who did the members of sample think knew anything? Well, they talked to one another. Okay? They thought people like themselves knew what was best.
0: For most of his professional career on Capitol Hill, Kevin Ring considered himself a law and order type. After serving more than 15 months in federal prison, he is now the president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. At the Cato Institute's conference on criminal justice reform, Ring described his experience and what he's learned in the process.
4: I've thought about the issues that make up criminal justice reform a lot over the past 20 years and I've had the unique opportunity to see them from very different sides. In the 90s, I worked on Capitol Hill as a tough-on-crime Republican staffer, both in the House and the Senate. I worked as a counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee, drafting anti-crime legislation, really bad anti-crime legislation, as it turned out. Uh, I then observed the legislative process from a different perspective as a lobbyist. Ultimately, my work as a lobbyist brought me under federal scrutiny, After two trials and appeals, I was sentenced to serve 20 months in federal prison. I spent 15 and a half months at the federal prison camp in Cumberland, Maryland. My bunk mates were mostly guys serving long sentences for drugs and guns. I was released last April, spent two months of home confinement, and I'm halfway through 30 months of probation. Um, But before I was indicted eight years ago, I started working at FAM. And I continued to work there during my trials and returned as soon as I got home from prison. Before I had joined, thanks to my time cooperating with the government going through that process, and as they tried to make cases against members of Congress and staffers, who I knew well, and me, I learned a lot about the enormous power the federal prosecutors wield. I saw how important it was to have an independent judge who could referee what quickly became an adversarial relationship. And I realized how dangerous it was for prosecutors to have that power, and then on top of that, to have power over sentencing, which is what mandatory minimums give them. But it was working for FAM that exposed me to the toll that prison-reliant policies have on real people. Now keep in mind, again, I came from a law and order mindset. I did not, and I still don't think that being tough on crime is a bad thing. I certainly don't think that people who break the law are victims. FAM is not the Innocence Project. Everyone that we profile and that we advocate for um, did it. They committed crimes, sometimes serious crimes. But that was the problem I saw was that While only some had committed serious crimes, they all were being punished as if they had. There was no sense of proportionality. Gone was the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. I was reading story after story about men and women, mostly men, mostly men of color, who served or were still serving absurdly long prison sentences. And at first, my cognitive dissonance would kick in. There must be something I don't know. These folks did something more that's not in the files that we have for them. And because I'd, been, I'd worked in the government, I'd been a member of the establishment, I needed to believe that the American c- criminal justice system wouldn't produce the outcomes that I was now seeing. Early on a FAM, I read about a young woman named Stephanie Knott. She lived in Mobile, Alabama. She wasn't married, but had three young children when she agreed to sell crack for a friend who had moved into the area. Stephanie's case triggered all my biases explicit and implicit. This was a case I was predisposed to dismiss. A young, black, unmarried Alabaman, I'm from Connecticut, with three kids she couldn't afford is selling crack. I didn't know anyone who shared one of those characteristics, let alone all of them. And I grew up Catholic, so I believed if you did something wrong, it was usually your fault. Uh, If something bad happened to you, it was your fault. So everything kicked in. And I was ready to dismiss a case like that. And even though I had troubles of my own, I separated myself from a case like that. But then I learned more. Stephanie had only helped her friend sell drugs for one month. One month. Then her boyfriend was under investigation, gave up Stephanie's name. She was indicted. She had moved away with her family, away from the area after that month. She was indicted, had to come back. She was arraigned. She was told she was a conspirator and would be held accountable for all the drugs this guy had sold during the course of his business. She wasn't a lawyer, but she knew that she wasn't responsible for all those things, especially the things that happened after she was gone. And this was her first offense, And she had three kids and was pregnant with another. So she went to trial, and she lost. In place at the time were mandatory minimums and mandatory guidelines that were tied to those minimums. And so Stephanie's judge gave her the sentence that corresponded not to her minor role or her short involvement in the conspiracy, but to the quantity of drugs her friend and others had sold. So at 23 years of age, Stephanie was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. Soon after Stephanie got there, she gave birth. When the doctors cut the cord and tried to give the baby to Stephanie, she refused. She expected to spend the next 25 years away from this child of hers, and her emotions started to kick in. She was so scared to hold this baby because she she knew then she was going to have to give it right back, and so she didn't want to take it. So for you parents out there, try to imagine that. It boggles the mind that anyone in government, let alone involved in her case, could be a party to such a massive miscarriage of justice. But here's the thing about Stephanie's case. The US Attorney's Office that prosecuted her was run at that time by a guy by the name of Jeff Sessions. Stephanie's case was one of dozens I read about when I first got the fam, and they blew my mind. These were not choir boys or girls; all had made mistakes, but the sentences made no sense at all from a public safety standpoint, let alone a moral or economic viewpoint. But Stephanie's case stuck with me. I reached out to her in prison, and I started to correspond with her. I wanted to bring more attention to her case in the hopes that she might get a presidential commutation, which at the time seemed unlikely, or that we might convince the U.S. Sentencing Commission to reduce the guidelines for crack-related offenses. I wrote some op-eds for her, and with her input, wrote some that were published over her signature. I told her that I was in the midst of fighting my own battle with the government. We tried to lift one another's spirits. We talked about our kids mostly, and we're worried about the impact our troubles would have on them. After a mistrial was declared in my first trial, I was convicted on half the counts at my second trial. I was headed to a sentencing hearing. Government had asked for four and a half years for the kingpin in my case, the leader of the conspiracy. They turned around and asked for 17 to 22 years for me. Like Stephanie, I had exercised my constitutional right to go to trial. And as a result, I was being punished for it. Fortunately, unlike Stephanie's case, there was no mandatory minimum. The guidelines were now advisory. And so my judge, who knew the case better than anyone else, having sat through it twice, uh, sentenced me to 20 months. And so though I had learned such worse cases from working at FAM, I was devastated at the prospect of being away from my young daughters. It was Stephanie, who at the time had been sitting in prison for nearly 20 years, who wrote to me, asked me what sizes my girls were, and told me that she loved to shop, and that if she got out first, she would buy them dresses for the holidays. I always think about that when I hear someone say that all people serving long sentences in federal prison are scary. Dangerous people. Ultimately, FAM and others were able to convince the U.S. Sentencing Commission to lower its recommended guidelines for crack offenses. Then Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which lowered crack sentences even more. So in 2011, after serving 21 years in federal prison, Stephanie Nodd was released to go home.
0: How do surveillance policies affect communities of color? Wade Henderson of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights spoke at the Cato Institute's Conference on Surveillance in December. The concerns
5: that we raise about the surveillance state are concerns that we in the civil and human rights community raise all the time. And that all Americans are entitled to equal treatment under the law, and that frequently, America fails to live up to that ideal. Now, because in a nation that has yet to seriously reckon with its racial history, the color of surveillance ends up often looking black and brown. Racism in America has always been about controlling the freedom and liberties of people of color. A primary way of enforcing this control was to create mechanisms for keeping tabs on them. Slaves were watched in the fields by overseers. Prominent leaders of the social movements for civil rights, including W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Fannie Lou Hamer, Whitney Young, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, and perhaps most notoriously, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who were tracked and wiretapped. Surveillance and infiltration uh, from within programs like COINTELPRO uh, helped to undermine entire movements like the Black Power Movement and the Vietnam Anti-War Movement. But our contemporary discourse around surveillance often obscures that history and suggests that these racial, ethnic, and religious patterns don't exist today. And nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. Many people know that the FBI wiretapped Dr. King and placed him on a watch list. Few know that this was done in the name of national security. And hardly anyone knows that the NSA also wiretapped Dr. King in the late 1960s, something that the agency disclosed just three months after the first revelation about Edward Snowden. The recent debates over NSA reform presented an important opportunity to discuss the disproportionate surveillance of people of color. Yet the available Senate records show that Dr. King's name was never even spoken once during those debates. This failure to acknowledge the historical precedence of our current surveillance state on the racial and ethnic dimensions of these practices has helped to create a conversation that obscures the particularities of how our current surveillance state actually works. Now take, for example, the NSA phone call tracking program that has been at the center of our current debate about government surveillance. Most Americans think the program is bad because the NSA was logging everyone's calls. But what wasn't well known was that the blueprint for the NSA's call tracking program was a Drug Enforcement Administration program that monitored the international calls between the U.S. and select countries, including Mexico and most of Central and South America, for nearly a decade in the 1990s. Now think about it. The most notorious surveillance program in our nation's history— was effectively beta-tested on immigrants. Now, we are really just playing catch-up yet again to the extent to which the government violates Americans' Fourth Amendment rights. In the 21st century, people assume everyone is watched, but not everyone is watched equally. Now, why isn't there more of an outcry about this? Well, I believe in part it's because we are failing to take seriously The way our biases around race, religion, and immigration status inform the choices we make with respect to surveillance. Right now, police departments across the country are adopting new surveillance technologies, including cameras that scan license plates at mosques, smartphone apps that recognize faces, and devices that intercept signals from mobile phones. These and other secret tools first justified on national security grounds are being applied for domestic law enforcement purposes. The sales pitch for these new technologies is that they will automatically increase public safety and that by replacing human beings, we would also be eliminating bias. Now, in some cases, these technologies will catch people who have committed crimes, some of them quite serious. But mark my words, these safety gains come with safety risks. And while these technologies may be powerful, they are not neutral. Take facial recognition, for example, just as one. The little research that has been done in the area suggests that face recognition is 5 to 10% less accurate when seeking to identify an African American, a female, or a young face as opposed to a white male, or older face. At the same time, racial disparities in arrests mean that this technology may be less accurate for the demographic it is most likely to be used on. African-Americans. These kinds of errors could easily result in wrongful investigations, arrests, and convictions.
0: So-called shared responsibility committees sounded like a way to identify people who might become violent extremists. As applied, the committees appeared to turn members of local communities into federal informants. Arjun Singh Sethi of the Sikh Coalition, speaking at the Cato Institute's Conference on Surveillance, discussed how these committees have worked in practice.
6: So shared responsibility uh, committees are FBI... Uh, organized committees that consist of, for example, a law enforcement official, a religious leader, maybe a youth coach, a mental health professional, a social worker, who assemble and convene for the purpose of helping a Muslim American who the FBI determines is at risk of becoming a violent extremist, right? So the idea is the FBI identifies a youth who might one day become a violent extremist, and they convene local committees consisting of the various types of professionals I just described, in an effort to stop this youth from one day becoming a violent extremist. Uh, Three critiques. First, the FBI never disclosed the criteria for determining that a Muslim American youth is at risk of becoming a violent extremist. So for example, is it based upon things like protected speech, right? Are they trying to convene committees because a Muslim American uh, youth expressed a newfound interest in religiosity, uh, participated in a protest, posted a controversial article on Facebook? Um, This isn't far-fetched. According to government documents, um, the types of indicators they are looking for are things like becoming confrontational at home, um, ideological differences, Second, we know, uh, based on other programs, and I think it's important to look, to look at the intersection of CVE with other overreaching, over-inclusive law enforcement programs, national security programs as well. So for example, um, we know under the Suspicious Activity Reporting Program, uh, which asks local law enforcement to report activities that they believe are indicative of pre-terrorism planning, Um, that Muslim-Americans who have visited Costco and purchased large pallets of water, uh, Muslim-Americans who search for video games online, um, Muslim-Americans who've placed large purchase orders for home computers at Best Buy have been visited by the FBI, right? We also know with something like the watchlist program, you can be branded a terrorist based on a single social media post. That's a fact. You just have to look at the watchlisting guidance that was leaked to The Intercept a couple years ago. Um, And again, within that, we know that Dearborn, Michigan, a city with less than 100,000 residents, has more watchlisted residents than any other city in the country except for New York. Um, So that's the first critique, right? That the FBI never actually specified the criteria for determining that a Muslim American will at one day be at risk of becoming a violent extremist. Second, they never specified the actual techniques that they use to determine that a Muslim American will one day become a violent extremist. So, for example, thinking about something like the DOJ racial profiling guidance. In late 2014, uh, the Department of Justice promulgated this guidance that specifically lays out the rules and the circumstances under which federal law enforcement and local and state law enforcement can profile on the basis of anything right, gender, uh, sexual orientation, faith, race. Um, And they specifically in that document allow for the TSA, allow for Customs and Border Patrol um, to profile on the basis of any category uh, they see fit. Um, And of course CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, their jurisdiction extends 100 miles inwards uh, and they are the largest law enforcement agency uh, in the country um, by far. Uh, This guidance also allows for um, law enforcement to use confidential informants absent any kind of suspicion. Uh, It also sanctions intelligence gathering programs like the NYPD demographics program that... um, um, some say has been disbanded, but I will leave that to another discussion, another time. Uh, so it's also important to be thinking about the techniques that are being used to determine that a Muslim American is at one day, is, is at some point in the future, risk becoming a violent extremist. And I would submit to you that just like with respect to the the first argument I made, um, the techniques that are being used are extraordinarily overinclusive, um, and even in the event that they might actually find a Muslim American who might one day uh, uh, be at risk of this. Um, The techniques don't justify uh, the ends. Um, The only other point I will make is regarding the actual committees. I would just say they're flawed in general. Um, That's because the the, the FBI under these committees, um, there is no uh, protections from disclosure um, for mental health professionals, uh, for lawyers. Uh, they can later be called. Um, So if if a member of an SRC helps an individual and that individual is later charged, private confidential notes that a mental health professional has with this particular individual could be subpoenaed. This mental health professional who is on this committee could later be called to testify. So could the lawyer. Furthermore, the FBI also said that if a committee determines that a youth is no longer at risk of becoming a violent extremist, the FBI can still investigate them they can still monitor them, right? So there's no point for a committee to be convened if the FBI can continue to monitor that individual while the committee is working with them and even after the committee has made the determination that this individual is no longer at risk of becoming a violent extremist.
0: The United States' historical advantages cause its people to misperceive international affairs. According to the new book, Why America Misunderstands the World, National Experience and Roots of Misperception, the author Paul Pillar, who spent most of his career interpreting foreign actions at the CIA, argues that intelligence analysis has limited impact on how U.S. policymakers look at the world. Pillar spoke at the Cato Institute in December.
7: So in sum, the the premise of the book is the American national experience contributes to significant misperceptions about the outside world that can be related directly to aspects of that experience in terms of geography, history, economics, social patterns, and that because of that relationship, uh, uh, that can be said to be distinctly American and that have significant effects on public policy. This is what I would describe as the downside of American exceptionalism. I don't have time to kind of outline the whole set of arguments in terms of relating the history and the culture to the way we see things today. But let me give you a couple of samples. Um, Start with the fact that we have our two ocean moats, which have provided us security through the years. By the time contact was made with a young United States, with others in North America, the US was strong enough not to be threatened. And the continental United States was almost untouched by even the great world wars of the 20th century. There are some implications of this. The geographic separation has fostered more of a sense, a psychological sense of separation between what's seen as a wise and virtuous America and the rest of the world with somewhat more negative attributes. There's more of a sharp distinction in American minds between the homeland and the rest of the world than there is, say, for most Europeans who have had their boundaries revised umpteen times. This especially sharp dichotomous view of the homeland versus the rest of the world has at times underlain isolationism. But more often in modern US history, the same set of perceptions has supported the idea that intervention by the United States in parts of the world that are less wise and less virtuous than the United States can only be for the betterment of the latter. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, although he was an Englishman, he lived in Vermont for several years, and when he wrote his poem, The White Man's Burden, uh, he started out uh, writing it with uh, Queen Victoria's uh, Jubilee in mind, but he eventually published it with a preface that indicated he was talking about the United States taking over the Philippines after the Spanish-American War. That's when the US got into the colonialism business, except we Americans don't use the word colonialism. We, we use uh, euphemisms, like phase four. And the negative perceptions of it on the part of other people, we have a hard time recognizing. We didn't anticipate the negative reactions in the Philippines after we took it over from the Spaniards. We didn't anticipate it in Iraq after we went in 2003, and there are countless other examples. One of the consequences of enjoying our free security with the the two ocean moats is we have difficulty in understanding the fears and sense of insecurity by other peoples who don't have that geographic advantage. We're the un-Belgium in that regard. Uh, We've used the term Finlandization, meaning having to make uh, concessions to a more powerful neighbor, as a dirty word. It came up during the Cold War in the 1950s and then in the 1980s. We have shown an insufficient appreciation for lesser countries to have to accommodate the needs of of neighbors. Uh, We didn't anticipate uh, the rapprochement of Iraq with Iran after Saddam Hussein was overthrown. Um, uh, Likewise, there has been insufficient appreciation, I think, of the need of Ukraine to have more of a uh, normal, non-antagonistic relationship with its powerful neighbor, Russia. The term Finlandization came up over the last couple of years, again, in a derogatory sort of way with regard to the Ukrainian-Russian problem. And interestingly, it was uh, you know, a couple of old European-schooled strategists, namely Henry Kissinger and Big Brzezinski, not reflecting the kind of American perspective I'm talking about, but really a European perspective that used Finlandization in a positive way to talk about the sort of relationship the Ukraine would have to have with Russia. Most of all, there's an insensitivity to how other nations can perceive the United States itself as a threat. Where foreign beliefs, even among friends and allies, are that US actions have had something to do with antagonism against the United States, or that the US itself could constitute a military threat well, we respond, we Americans tend to respond in a way that was expressed by President George W. Bush, who said a month after 9-11, and I quote, I'm amazed that there is such misunderstanding of what our country is about, that people would hate us. I am, I am like most Americans, I just can't believe it, because I know how good we are, and we've got to do a better job of making our case, unquote. This thus surprise in the negative reactions that uh, to U.S. presence or initiatives occur in places like Iraq, and thus dashed expectations that the United States would be greeted in such places with sweets and flowers.
0: What is the best political system? What standards should we use to decide and why? In Arguments for Liberty, a new book published by the Cato Institute's Libertarianism.org project, nine different political philosophers discuss how their preferred school of thought judges political institutions and why libertarianism best meets that standard. Though they end up in the same place, the paths they take diverge in fascinating ways. You can find Arguments for Liberty at Cato.org and at online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown, talk to you again next month.